Open our Bibles to the book of Malachi, if you would please. Malachi chapter number four is where we have been the past two weeks, and it is where we will begin again here today, as we are now just one week from the celebration of Christmas, a time that we set aside to remember Emmanuel, God with us. Not just a warning that he is coming or a sign that it might be, but a remembrance that he has come to pay for the sins of the world. Malachi chapter number four. Let's go ahead and stand to our feet. If you would, please, I'll begin reading in verse number one. And the word of God says, for behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him at Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Father, we look towards your son. And I pray in these short moments that we have this morning, Lord, that you would empty me of myself and fill me with the power of your Spirit. Lord, not for the glory of my name's sake, but for yours. And Lord, I pray that you would guard my heart as well as my lips and mind, that everything communicated this morning would bring glory to you. And Father, I beg you that if there's anyone here today or watching or listening later, that is unsaved. Father, I pray that your Holy Ghost would bring conviction to them that they would realize themselves a sinner and learn of your Son, their Savior, and receive him as their own. Lord, help me in this, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm continuing the series this morning where God left off. We have one great division in our Bible and many smaller divisions. The smaller divisions between the different books of the Bible, whether it be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, or Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. However, right there in the midst of our Bible is the greatest division, the division between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now make no mistake, from Genesis through Revelation, the Bible is one consistent whole, However, the Word of God does implore us that we should rightly divide the Word of truth. In other words, there are divisions within it. There are separations which have truth that, that speak to their own, although are united in the greater whole of this story. And here we rest at the cusp, the precipice, 
The gap between the Old Testament and the New, a 400-year space of time in which there was no new revelation of God, no new prophet, no new message or angel that, that would come to God's people and proclaim God's truth, but instead they stood there in silence. And for the last two weeks, we have observed some things about the way that, that God left off in the New in the Old and began once again in the new. And I will remind you this morning, as well as I have the past two weeks, that when God leaves off, he does not leave business unfinished, but instead he comes back to complete his work. And was it not the very words of Jesus Christ from the cross that it is finished in Christ? We were reminded two weeks ago That during this space of time, God went from silence to speech. 400 years of silence, but it was not a period of time without God's silent preparation. And when God showed up in that manger in the person of Jesus Christ, the gospel writer of John describes his arrival as this, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God We saw his silent preparation. We heard the sound of his voice and were commanded to respond with a sensible reaction. Last week, we looked at the very last word on our pages that we read today, the word curse. And we were reminded that God may have left off with a curse, but he began again with the cure. And this reality reminded us that there is a curse in our past But there is compassion in our priest and there is condition for our pardon. But this morning, this morning I have something different that I would like to examine from this text. For yes, God left off in silence and began again in speech. God left off with curse but began again in cure. But I would like to examine the fact that God left off with signs but began again with his very substance. I went to college in Pensacola, Florida. By the time I arrived at college in January of 2002, I'd already spent a considerable amount of time away from home. I'll never forget the day that I boarded the bus at the military and processing station in Beckley, West Virginia, and looked out that window and saw... Tears well up in my mother's eyes. It had only been a few hours since I had graduated high school and the bus driver put that bus into gear and we began making our way south to Fort Jackson, South Carolina. I had completed all of my active duty training at Fort Jackson and at Fort Gordon, had come home for the Christmas holiday and had now made my way all the way to Pensacola, Florida. And it was time to come home. Anna, you know the feeling, don't you? As well as others that are here, Ashley, and I'm not sure if Tucker is around today or not, and I noticed that Eli came back single as ever. Hey, Eli. I couldn't help it. I'm sorry. But all along that road, all along that road were signs. 820 miles. And I just wanted to be home. 
I look forward to the sign, to the sign that showed me I was going to be for, passing from Florida to Alabama. And as I-65 stretched directly north, straight up through the state of Alabama, I'm looking for the arrival of Tennessee. Little did I know that many years later I would become a resident of this great volunteer state. But all I wanted at that time was to pass the miles and get every single mile in Tennessee behind me as I wind my way through the streets of Nashville and look towards the coming of the bluegrass state of Kentucky. And I'm looking for those signs that Kentucky will show up. And as I come out of Alabama into Tennessee, there are some signs because the ground starts getting a little bit more lumpy and the road begins to take some more twists and turns, just signs that I'm getting a little closer to home. Well, I come up through Kentucky and I get off of I-65 and get onto Interstate 64 heading east because I know on Interstate 64 is the great city of Huntington, West Virginia. Oh, just about every single time when I get to Ashland, Kentucky, before I cross that bridge into the great state of West Virginia, tears would well up in my eyes and I would hit play on that John Denver hymn called Country Roads. (laughs) It's my favorite hymn in the hymn book. (laughs) And oh, I would try to muscle through that song. Country roads, <laughs> take me home. And by the emotions would wear, would wear down. Normally it was already late into the night and, and I would pass through the home of Marshall University where my brother attended college. And, and boy, the roads are very windy by now. And it might be an interstate, but reaching above 60 miles an hour is difficult sometimes on that particular stretch of road. And oh, I'm seeing signs. I'm seeing signs of a home that I grew up in as the interstate finally puts that sign for St. Albans, West Virginia, the hometown that I grew up in. And now it's only 30 miles away and now only 20 miles away. And I know I'm not home yet. And my legs are crawling and my hands are burning. And I'm just wanting to press the accelerator as hard as I can because I am tired of seeing signs. Finally, I wind my way. Down Pennsylvania Avenue, the Coal River is to my right, and the hills are to my left, and I cross some railroad tracks and make it onto this narrow little road called Bellwood Drive, which winds its way precariously up the the holler with asphalt that has eroded and degraded, and, and finally I come up to the crest of this hill and slowly turn down. This turn is so sharp, you can't see much ahead of you. But the moment you come around and see the warm light, every light in the house is off, but not that kitchen light. Because inside that kitchen, my mom and my dad sit waiting for their little boy to come home. I pull into the driveway and throw the car into park and forget all the luggage and forget the keys and the ignition and I run out the door and run out of the door of my car and straight into the door of my house. And now I am not looking for signs anymore because I am in the substance of my home. I am in a place in which I am welcome. I'm in a place where I am called a son. I'm in a place where my father lives and my mother lives. I'm in a place where I can do no wrong, even though I still do wrong, because I am home. I love that feeling. 
And the Old Testament is full of signs. Little road signs just reminding them that the Messiah is coming. Little signs, little pictures of Christ's nature and of his purpose and of his, of his activities. And little signs uh, in the tabernacle and little signs in the sacrifices and little signs and messages in the prophets. But his substance was, was far away and over those 400 years of silence and they were tired of looking back to the old signs and God may have given many signs and may have left off with those signs but when that cry of the little baby pierced the silent night he was through his signs because the substance of his promise the Lord Jesus Christ had arrived and now we no longer look for signs but we look back to that manger and are reminded that the substance of our Savior Emmanuel God with us has come And the only sign we knew now is the sign of his second coming. But I would like to go back to this day and age and look at where God left off. God left off with signs and came back in substance. I noticed that in doing so, he went from pictures to his presence. If you would look with me at verse number four, here while these men that were contemporary with Malachi had no idea that they were about to be the last ones that would receive a prophetic message from the Lord, this was their instruction. I want you to look at the very first word of verse number four most intently. Remember, he says. Remember, remember, remember. That word must have echoed in their conscience and in their heart for every single day of their lives. For as they look forward to the substance of the Messiah's arrival, all they could think about is that word, remember, remember, remember. And he says to remember something specifically. He says, remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel with the script, with the statutes and the judgments. Oh, that word, remember the law of Moses. You see, the law of Moses worked in that day the way that road signs work in this day. The law of Moses. It was not just a law of statutes and judgments whereby Israel was supposed to live. But we look deeper into those statutes and judgments that they were to teach them about the nature of the one who would come and redeem them. The law of Moses is defined as the Pentateuch, those first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. <clears throat> what do we see in the books of the law? We see, first off, a picture that was given in the presence of Adam and Eve. As the Lord God speaks there to the serpent, he reminds them that the seed of woman will come. And as a sign, he tells them that the seed of woman will come and his heel will be bruised by the serpent, but he will bruise the serpent's head. And Adam and Eve are given a picture of that one that was to come. The picture becomes a little bit more clear as Adam and Eve exit the garden clothed the picture becomes more clear when God sacrificed an animal and he did so himself 
to make coats of skin so that Adam and Eve's sinful flesh would be covered in his sight. And whether they understood all the implications of this picture or not, the Lord was giving them a picture of another who would come and clothe them. That there would be one that would clothe them with the righteousness of his own sacrifice. That when the Father would look down, he would not see the nakedness of their flesh, wicked and sinful as it had become, but instead he would see the nature of the sacrifice that they were clothed with. Oh, it was a picture of one that would come. As we look even further in the books of Moses, we see that the picture takes on new definition and clarity in Genesis chapter number 2, when God commands that great patriarch Abraham to sacrifice his son. There is a substitutionary sacrifice provided by God. For in verse number 8 of that chapter, the Bible says, as Abraham responds to Isaac, that God will provide himself a lamb. A picture is being painted in front of the children of Israel. And there in Malachi's day, he's pointing them back that they might remember this picture, that they would not miss the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would not miss his person. For his person would be similar in nature to all of those pictures. And this picture was driven home every single year on the Day of Atonement. As a spotless lamb was brought into a temple or a tabernacle and was sacrificed in its purity, in its innocence, this picture was painted. In fact, we look back at that picture and we are reminded of what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter number three when it says, but in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. How uncanny is that word? And Hebrews also mentioned here in Malachi chapter 4 that there is a remembrance. God was trying to remind his people then and still remind his people now that there is something, a sign that has been placed in front of us of what the Savior was going to be like. He was going to be like those spotless lambs that were brought forth for the slaughter. He was going to be like that lamb that was sacrificed so that Adam and Eve would be covered with coats of sins. That sacrifice that would come, he would be like the picture of that, that ram that was there placed as a substitutionary sacrifice for the son of Abraham, Isaac. That's the kind of, of person that he was going to be. That's the kind of substance that he was going to have. And in Hebrews chapter 10, verse number one, it says, for the law, the same law that Malachi told his people to be mindful of, for the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, continually make the comers thereunto perfect. There is no sacrifice in those pictures that can make any of them perfect. But where God left off with pictures, he picked back up with his very presence, with the substance of Jesus Christ. 
For when the angel broke the silence of those 400 years to some shepherds in the fields of Bethlehem, it was the angel's proclamation to behold, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. For when Jesus came, he was not the sign of God, nor just the Son of God, but he was the very substance of God. He was God in flesh. He was the perfect sacrifice that would take away the sins of the world. He was not just a sign that the Messiah would come. He was the very Messiah himself. Oh, we should glory in the arrival of Christ as we remind ourselves of the words of John the Baptist. He did not say, behold, the Lamb might come. He did not say, behold, the Lamb is going to come. He said, behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. He did not say that the sins would be at a later time taken away. But instead, he pointed out the fact that through the very flesh and body of this Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're no longer looking for a sign, but there he is. There is the lamb. There is the one who taketh away the sin of the world. And as we celebrate this day, let us not just look to a manger in a sweet and sentimental moment, but let's be reminded that this is no sign of his coming. But this is his coming. This is the most pivotal moment in all of world history that God would condescend toward man, place himself in the flesh of man to die for the sins of man. He may have left off with a picture, but he picked back up with his presence. And that presence is what we celebrate. I see in this incredible look, incredible book, that where God left off, when he went from signs to substance, that he went from prophets to coming in his own power. I can imagine the dismay of those in Malachi, if you remember from the previous weeks, the people of Israel had come back. They had returned to Jerusalem with great expectation that when the walls were finished and the temple was finished, that then would be restored their prominence on earth, that the Messiah would be ushered in, if you will, and that they would be established as an eternal kingdom at that time. Yet it didn't happen. Not at that time. Instead of being given his power, they were left with another prophet. The prophet whose name's ador- name adorns the top of our page, the prophet Malachi, his name literally means this it means messenger. It means messenger. Another prophet is mentioned in the very next verse from which we were been examining. Verse number five says, Behold, after the people of Israel were commanded to remember those pictures, now he says, Behold, there is a prophet. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And to their dismay, 
Instead of having the Lord come in power, they had one more prophet, the name of Malachi, meaning messenger. And really, that's all that prophets were to do. They were to bring the message of God to the people of God. Priests had a different function entirely, although um, Although prophets were there as ministers from God to man, priests were there to minister from man to God. But there was this space, this intermediary between God and man. And it seemed like that space, although they yearned to have it closed by his power, it did not come to fruition in their lifetimes. And they could think about the prophet Malachi, whose name meant messenger. They could think about this this proclamation that only another prophet was going to come to pronounce his coming. And they could think back to the fact that Isaiah pronounced his coming, and Daniel pronounced his coming, and Ezekiel pronounced his coming. They could look at, at all of the angels that proclaimed his coming. And I remind you that in Greek, the word angel, angelos, it simply means messenger. Well, sometimes you think that we would become weary of just receiving the messenger. We joke about it. We say the phrase, don't shoot the messenger. What are we saying? We're saying that there's a difference between a messenger who comes just as a foretelling prophet. There's a difference between the messenger and the Messiah, isn't there? And that's the difference. That's the difference from where God left off to where God picked up at the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. The idea of a messenger is only to bring a message and not the Messiah. He can't do anything about his message. He can't alter his message. He can't apply his message to one or withhold it from another. He only declares what has been declared to him. But when Jesus came, he did not come as just a prophet with a message, but he came as the Messiah in power. Oh, John chapter 1 says that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And it does not say that we beheld His message, but instead it says that we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The prophets may have had truth, and their truth was pure, and their truth was needed, and their message was necessary. But when Jesus came, He did not just bring truth. He gave this also, that he came with grace. The power of his grace, his amazing grace, that we could be forgiven of our sins, that we have been purchased by his blood. This was the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes the gospel of Jesus Christ. He went from prophets to his power. But then I would like to point out lastly, that when he went from signs to substance, it was not just prophets to power and pictures to his presence, but he also went from promises to perfection. You know, he says in verse number five, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. In verse number 6, he says, And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. These are promises. 
You know, in, in truth, many promises have been broken, haven't they? No, not promises of the Lord, but we are well acquainted with skepticism when someone gives us a promise. We're embarrassed to admit the fact that there have been promises made to our children that we have not perfected or fulfilled. Many times I've stood at the front of a church and a husband and a wife, a bride and a groom will make promises there on the altar till death do us part. And yet it breaks my heart to see so many make those promises void. We make promises to ourselves. Promises to do better or to be better. Promises to be more kind or, or to be more healthy. And yet, are we not so well acquainted with breaking those promises that we make to ourselves? This is a true plague in our society that we have to work so hard to convince people that we are going to do what we say and we have to accompany those words instead of just letting our nay be nay, our yea be yea, and our nay be nay. We have to beg and plead and pull to convince people, I promise, I promise, I promise. No, I, I really will. I, I, I truly will. And even at that, after we go to the full lengths of our vocabulary to convince people that we promise we will do this. And yet even at then, we still sometimes fail, don't we? And here we have some promises. We have some promises made by the Lord through his prophets to his people. And I am pleased to report to you this morning that God is not slack concerning his promise. As some men, all of us, count slackness. But he is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all, all, all should come to repentance. And the thing about the promises of God is that we can look back and we can see a track record of his faithfulness. He made a promise that the Messiah would come, and has he not come? He made a promise that he would come out of the root of Jesse. And did he not come from the tribe of Judah, the root of Jesse, the descendant of David? He made a promise that he would put on flesh. And here we are, separate, we are celebrating the reality, the reality that Christ has put on flesh. He made a promise that he would be despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and that we would hide our faces from him. And he made good on that promise, both on that promise that he would suffer and by, our, by his stripes we would be healed and also good on that promise that so many would reject him. He made good on the promise. There are 120 messianic prophecies concerning the coming of Christ and every single one of them, all 120 have been fulfilled. The prophecy in Micah that he would be born in Bethlehem 700 years before his coming. The promise that he would flee to Egypt in Hosea chapter number 11. The promise that he would be betrayed by his friend in Psalm 41. The promise that his hands and feet would be pierced in Psalm 22. All 100 had been fulfilled to a T. Why? Because God keeps his promises. And when the Lord Jesus Christ came... To be born of a woman, he kept the promise that by the seed of woman shall that child be born. 
120 promises. And as those readers of Malachi read the last two verses, all they saw was more promises and more promises and more promises and were left to decide by faith whether they were going to look forward to the fulfillment of that promise with confidence that the Lord's promises will be perfected and fulfilled. But we have a greater responsibility because we do not look forward to the fulfillment of his promise as these men and women did. But instead, we look backward towards the reality that those 120 prophecies, those 120 promises have already been perfected in the one man, the man, Christ Jesus. And by faith, we look back to that manger knowing that in that manger rested the Son of God. We look back to that cross, putting our confidence and faith in the fact that all of our sins were imputed unto him and that by faith his righteousness can be imputed unto us that we can be forgiven why because he said we could because he promised and if you're here this morning and you've been struggling with the assurance of your salvation could I remind you of this that he promised that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved he promised that there neither is there salvation in any other for there is none other name under heaven given to men whereby we must be saved and if you've got Jesus you've got life for in first John we learn that he that he that hath the son hath life and he that hath not the son of God hath not life he promised he promised he promised do not hang your confidence on a prayer hang your confidence on a promise because he may have left off with promise but he continued again with perfection. Oh, with this thought in my mind, I, I look towards the coming of Christ and am reminded that our God is a God that perfects the promises he's given. And then I remember that there's still some promises out there, aren't there? Did you know that there are approximately 120 prophecies concerning his first coming, but there are about 300 prophecies concerning his second coming, more than double. And as we sit here in this sanctuary on the eve of Christmas, looking forward to its arrival, let's look a little bit further down the road. And instead of being critical to those in the day of Malachi, may we embrace by fact that there are still some promises that are yet to be perfected and fulfilled. And he will come again. Didn't he promise his disciples that he went to prepare a place for them that where he is there we may be also? Did he not tell them that if he goes to prepare a place that he will come again? He will come again. He promised he would. And he, when he comes again, he will come for us. Oh, glory to his name that we are able to gather in this sanctuary and revel in the promise of his perfection, the promise of his coming, the promise promise that he will not leave us the promise that he will not forsake us the promise where two or three are gathered in my name there am I in the midst of him and here he is in his person in our presence oh where God left off with a picture he came back with his 
presence. And as we celebrate Christmas, let us not just celebrate it as a historical event of the past, but instead, it is not just the down payment, but the complete paid in full payment for the future. You know, really, I've, I've messed up all along. God didn't leave off. He's just got some unfinished business. He's got some unfinished business in your life. He's got some unfinished business in my life. And I wonder if during this time of Christmas, we would just be yielded to his unfinished business on this earth, in our hearts, and in this life.